Well, good morning. I greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath. Today, with God's help, we shall unmask one of the greatest threats to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and one of the greatest enemies of our faith, and that is legalism. Legalism. Brothers and sisters, you may have never heard of the term legalism, but you most certainly have met this foe on more than one occasion. This foe, legalism, is an ancient foe. He, if I could use him, use uh, legalism as a person, he has been around since the fall of man. He is as old as Eden. And throughout the centuries, he, legalism, has led astray the masses with his message of earning our way to the throne of God through human effort. Brothers and sisters, what is legalism? We might automatically think that legalism is being strict about the law of God. That legalism is somehow keeping people accountable to obey God's law. Let me say to you, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, and those maybe who might be visiting, that is not legalism. To cause or to, uh, for someone to seek to obey God's law and to call fellow confessors of God's law, God's word, to call them to obedience is not legalism. It's Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Over the years, one of the accusations that I've heard charged against the Reformed Church, especially, is that the Reformed are legalistic. They love theology, but they don't have the Spirit of God. Uh, they are uh, strict about what we can and cannot do in the church. Not just the Reformed Church in general, but also this church. I've heard whispers. I know that you have heard whispers, and maybe they've even spoken to you directly. That church is legalistic. Where's the band, they say? Where are all the guest speakers, they say? Where are the dramas? Where are the skits, they say? Church membership? Being affirmed by other members? You have to be a member to take the Lord's Supper. You must be baptized. Why are they so adamant about attending service on the Lord's Day? What is more, they even call it a Sabbath. Oh, that is very legalistic you've heard these things I've heard these things most of the time not directly but from others brothers and sisters is the reformed church legalistic is this church reformation bible church legalistic let me ask you another question what does legalistic even mean after all, if we are going to use those terms, it is imperative that we understand what they mean. 
so that we don't misapply them where we should not, and also that we apply those terms when they are appropriate to be used. In order to give us a scriptural understanding of legalism and how we might, by the grace of God, at all costs avoid it, we will consider Paul's letter to the church of Galatia. Once again, and possibly for the next four or five weeks, we will not be doing a detailed exposition of a text. I've got a lot of things I want to say to you. Uh, rather, we will use the text that we are speaking or using today to propel us to understand further what this subject of legalism is all about. Let me say, just before we get really into the meat of this sermon, uh, pay no mind to the sound. It's being worked on. We've ordered a new mic. It'll all be okay. Eh? Hear the words. Number one, doctrinal legalism is, is our first point. I have, uh, I think, four points for you this morning. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But, if, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached, he is accursed. As we have said before, so I say now again, if a man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Does this sound okay? Let me switch this over. doesn't get recorded, it doesn't matter. You guys are the ones who need to hear it, right? Turn this, turn this up. Turn it up as high as you can because I'm going to keep it right here. Turn it up, turn it up, turn it up, turn it up. There we go. Keep going up. There we go. All right. Is that better? Yeah. Good. Galatians, again, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. We've read the, the verses. This letter to the church of Galatia is one of the unique letters of the Apostle Paul. Unique in the sense that the Apostle Paul wastes no time to address the issue that has arisen in the church of Galatia. The Apostle Paul planted the church in Galatia by preaching the gospel of grace, the gospel of grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apparently, this church was which was made up of mostly Gentiles, that is non-Jews, initially received this gospel of grace with great joy. The apostle even commended the church of Galatia for their beginning. He said in chapter 3, they began in the spirit. He said in chapter 5, they were running so well. What happened? Legalism happened. Legalism happened. A sect arose that Paul identifies in chapter 2, verse 14, as those who sought to, listen to the word, Judaize the Gentile believers. That is, convert them to Judaism. Judaize them. In history, they have become known as Judaizers. 
That is, they are those who began to teach that in order for one to be saved, here it is, in order for one to be truly saved, they must submit to the law of Moses, submit to circumcision of Abraham, and place their faith in Christ. Then, and only then, would one be truly saved. The church of Galatia, possibly because of the, the pedigree of these Judaizers, felt like they were outmatched, maybe theologically, uh, maybe uh, intellectually. And so they did not put up the fight against this false teaching that they should have. How could they? These were Judaizers, after all. Now, it is important to make a distinction going forward. The Judaizers were not calling the Gentile believers to submit to the moral law. They were calling the Judaizers to submit to the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. The moral law is that law that has been written on the hearts of men via being created in the image of God. It is that law which we all know. And it is that law which, in our sin, we sinfully sought to suppress. But now that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, regenerated in our spirits, we love that law. We are free to uh, obey that law and to enjoy that law. And also, all of the commands or laws that Christ has commanded for his church. That's different. So then the moral law is that which is written on the heart. This was not the law. That the Judaizers were calling these Gentiles to obey. Why? Because Paul tells us in the book of Romans that all men, Jew and Gentile, we naturally obey this law. It is written on our hearts. We therefore know it is against God. It is a sin to lie. It is a sin to steal. It is a sin to uh, commit adultery. It is a sin to worship other gods. These laws have been written on our hearts. They are the Decalogue. They are the Ten Commandments. It's not the moral law that the Judaizers were calling the church to submit to. It was the ceremonies of the law. It was the, the civil duties of the law. And it was circumcision, which they added as a part of the law. The message was complete these works. And then and only then will you be saved and justified before God. The Apostle Paul planted this church with the gospel of grace. It is the only gospel that proclaims that salvation is found in none other but the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace declares that in the doing, dying, and rising, and ascending of Christ, that salvation is sufficient if we repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ alone. The gospel of grace declares that Christ has obeyed the law in our stead. That Christ has taken our sins upon his shoulders. That Christ has drunk the cup of wrath to the very dregs. And that God has accepted the perfect work of Christ and his sacrifice. That God has raised Christ from the dead, giving to him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God alone. The Galatians received that message. And they received it with great joy, just as you and I have received that message with great joy. They were enthusiastic. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Christ is able to save 
to the uttermost. But it was not long. It was not long before they turned from this gospel of grace. The apostle says, I'm amazed. Not in a good way. I'm horrified even that you have so quickly deserted him who's called you by grace, by the grace of Christ. The, the report has reached the ears of the apostle that this church that had begun so passionately in the grace of Christ was turning from grace to a false gospel of works. Let me say this as I say that. Uh, dear ones, there is only one gospel. It is the gospel of grace. I come from this background, but there's no such thing as it. There's no such thing as a prosperity gospel. There is no such thing as a name it and claim it gospel. There is no such thing as a new age gospel. There is but one gospel. It is the gospel of grace. There is but one good news. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one gospel. And the apostle brings this to the attention of the Galatians. You're turning to another gospel, but it's not another because there is no other. They had turned. And who was, who did the apostle rebuke the church for turning from? He says in verse 6, you are quickly deserting him. Him. Him who called you. Who, who, is, who is the him that Paul is rebuking them for turning from? It's Christ. They had turned from Christ. They're not just turning to a false teaching. They are turning from Christ to a false teaching. They turned from grace to work. They turned from the free, grace, the, the free gift that cannot be worked for and that cannot be repaid and exchanged the free gift for something they, they must earn, something they must work for. That is no gospel. That is legalism. That, my dear brothers and sisters, is legalism. Legalism is turning from the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and casting your works at the foot of the throne of God in pride, believing that those works will somehow be worthy enough to be accepted by God. That is legalism. Legalism is the belief that Christ, here it is, plus anything that you think, do, or say equals salvation. Legalism makes void the grace of God and says the work of Christ, here it is, is not sufficient for salvation. That's legalism. I must contribute to the work of Christ in order to be justified before God. That is legalism. Who's the legalist? Who is legalistic? Do we preach a legalistic gospel here? No, because there is no such thing as a legalistic gospel. There is only but one gospel. The Judaizers, they were legalistic. The Judaizers, they were the legalists. They were seeking to place a yoke of, of bondage even on the necks of the Gentiles. In the first council of the church, the, the council at Jerusalem in Genesis chapter or Acts 15, the apostles gathered to settle a matter that arose concerning salvation. The question was this. How is one saved? Does one need to be circumcised and submit to the law 
moral, ceremonial, civil, in order to be saved. The apostles gathered. There were those who were demanding that Gentiles do these things in order to be saved. And after much debate, the apostle Peter spoke up. And here's what he said in Acts 15.10. Now, therefore, speaking to to, to the brothers, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Here it is. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. That is grace alone. In the same way that they are also. Peter is saying, we believe we are saved by grace. Grace is no work you can do. If we believe we're saved by grace, then the Gentiles must also be saved by grace. Don't put a yoke of bondage upon the necks of the people that they cannot carry and that we have never been able to carry. There is no work that we can do to be saved. It is by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The essence of legalism is this. It's placing on the necks of God's people a command. Here it is. That God has not given Placing on people a command that God has not given. It's adding extra commands, here it is, for salvation beyond repentance and faith in Christ alone. That some additional self-effort, merit, or faithfulness on our part is necessary to be saved. Here it is, taking the law too far. Legalism. It's taking what God has, has required for salvation too far. Now, if we say you must attend worship in order to be saved, that's legalism. If we say you must partake of the Lord's Supper to be saved, that's legalism. My dear brothers and sisters, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. Let me say to you unequivocally this morning. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as taught by the scriptures alone. The only certain rule of faith and obedience to the glory of God alone. The legalist says, oh, but there is more that you must do in order to be saved. The legalist does not believe, again, in the sufficiency of Christ. That's legalism. So who's legalistic? Brothers and sisters, Legalism is poisonous. It not only distorts the gospel, it distorts the law. It distorts the gospel by mixing the law with the gospel as if we were saved by the law. No. The law cannot save us. It can only show us we need to be saved. The law or legalism distorts the law. Forgetting that God gave the law to his people in love as a light to their path to lead them to Christ. Legalism is anything that diminishes or distorts the generous love of God and the full freeness of grace that is offered to us in Christ. Now, let's move to our next point. Hopefully that's clear. Where did it come from? Where did legalism come from? Did it begin with these Judaizers? Number two, the roots of legalism. Very simply, very practically, the roots of legalism 
are in the sinful, fallen, corrupted hearts of men. That's where legalism began. At creation, God gave commandments. They are good. Not they were. They are good. And they express the holy nature of God for his creation. His commands are good. They've always been good. And they've always been meant for the good of his creatures. God is our loving father. And what he commands is best for us. Amen. When God created man and woman, he made them in his image. He made us to reflect him. He made us to commune with him and to enjoy him. He made us to enjoy life and creation. He placed man in the Garden of Eden and commanded them to extend the glory of Eden to the ends of the earth, to, to spread the image of God throughout the entire world. They were to produce other image bearers who glorified God, just as Seth was in the likeness of his father Adam. So man was created to bear the image of God, expressed through living in obedience to God's commands. That is how we best display the image of God, when we obey our Creator. Until we all know, one day the serpent came and deceived Eve with a question. And what was, his, what was he challenging Eve with? The law of God. Indeed, has God said to you, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? He challenged Eve's knowledge of God's law, Eve's uh, obedience and commitment to the law of God. And what was her response? From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the tree of, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat of it or touch it or you will die. This is a woman who had the ability to sin or not sin, who was made perfect before God. And when she is challenged with God's law, when she is challenged with the veracity of God's law and her commitment to God's law, she folds. She is deceived, yes, but she willfully chose to disobey God. And you know the rest of the story. Man fell into sin. A lack of conformity to God's revealed law. And the distortion of the image resulted in a corruption in man's heart. The Lord remains the same. His designs for his image bearers remain the same. But the image is now marred. The image is now corrupted. We remain in the image of God. That the laws that govern God's creation... They have not changed. But we have now changed. We are now twisted. We are now distorted. We now carry the aroma of death. The law within that has been written on our hearts, it still functions, but it is now marred. Not because God's law is marred. Because we are corrupted. The church of Galatia fell into the trap of humanity. The temptation to believe that there is something that we must do in order to be accepted by God in our flesh. The problem is that we don't understand the grace of God. We cannot fathom that there is simply nothing that I can do to be saved. Haven't you ever gone to a, a, a family function, maybe some of you who are very helpful, or to a workspace and, and can I help you in any kind of way? Can I help serve the food? Can I help pick something up? 
Some of you are looking like, no, I wish more family members would ask that question. No, there is nothing that you can do. Everything is taken care of. You simply must rest in the work that has been completed. There must be some work that I can do. No, there is nothing. There must be some, some act, some merit that I could give. No, there is nothing. Isn't it amazing that the gospel of grace is that you are not good enough. The good news is that you're not good enough. That's good news. It may sound like bad news, but why does it sound like bad news? Because we're corrupted. We're prideful. We are sinful. We hate to be told you're not good enough. That's exactly what God says to every single one of us. And and here's what he expects us to do in, in, in light of that. To rejoice. All throughout your life, uh, older ones, younger ones, you are going to be told you're not good enough. And the only time when you should rejoice is when you hear it in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not good enough. It's, after all, what makes every false religion outside of Christianity exactly the same. We want to know, tell me more about Hinduism. Tell me more about Mormonism. Tell me more about uh, Jehovah's Witnessism. Well, here's what they all have in common. They all believe you can be good enough. Here's what's different about Christianity. It's the one that says, no, you can't. It's the only one that says, no, you can't. It's the only one that says grace is the way to salvation. While all the other ones say, no, work for it. That's why they are all the same and false. And why this one is the only one that is true. The person who understands grace loves God's law. The first useful use of the law is to show us that we are sinners in need of a savior. To use the law to make yourself acceptable is rebellion against the gospel of Christ. To add to our own, to add our own ideas, our own traditions results in subtraction of the law of God. Addition to the law of God equals subtraction to the law of God. Does that make sense? When we add anything to God's law, we take away from God's law. And let the one who takes away from the law of God be accursed, Paul says. If anyone brings to you a different gospel other than the one that we brought to you, let him be accursed. Anathema. God looks upon the heart. Yes, he does. If the heart is right, then what else will be right? The outward will be right. If the heart is right, the outward is right. It is hypocrisy. To proclaim, I love God, I love his word, and deliberately disobey his word, and deliberately disobey his law. That sounds legalistic. No, that's Christianity. The heart that does not obey God is not right with God. No matter how much we can say, only God knows my heart. Brother, sister, we can see your heart. You're showing it in what you do and what you say. And you're saying by what you don't do. And what you don't say, that you don't love God. That sounds legalistic. Who is the legalist? You sound like an antinomian, which we'll talk about next week. How can the heart be right if we reject what God requires? 
It is also as we learn, and I said this morning in our narrow road, it's possible to be obeying on the outside and to have no real love toward God on the inside. When this happens, the answer is never, well, let's remove the outward until the inward gets right. No, we don't wait for the waters to stir before we finally jump in the water. We obey. We obey. Don't stop the outward. Ask God to give you grace for the inward. Lord, I know, as Paul says in the book of Romans, I know the law is good. I am not. I am sold into sin. I know the law is spiritual. I am not. I am flesh. Ask the Lord to help you to obey his law, to obey his word. Sinclair Ferguson said, legalism separates the law of God from the person of God. So instead of seeing God as a loving and generous father who gave his law for our good, the good of his children, you have rules in your houses, don't you? I, I know someone very close to me who I love with all my heart. His children go to bed at 8 o'clock, maybe 7. It's for their good, though. I need to do better because my son doesn't go to bed till 1 o'clock in the morning. And he thinks he's favored. He's just being hurt. I need to help him. We have rules in our homes, and they're for the good of our children. They're not, they're not for the detriment of our children. Someone may not like it and say, that's legalistic. But that's the father or mother of that home, and they're doing what is best for those children. They're not your children. They're their children. In the same way, God has given us laws, and they are what is best for us. And we must see him as a loving father who loves us, not a policeman who only gives us his law to deprive us or to rob us of certain joys. They are for our good. Oh, to look at the Reformed Church and say they're nothing but policemen. To look at the Reformed Church and say they, they, they're a bunch of narcs who walk around that church. No. No. We are those who really desire holiness. Adam and Eve, when they rejected the law of God, disobeyed. And distorted the view of God. Legalism is like a pouting child who accuses God of never giving him anything. You know who that person is? He's the, the son who did not become prodigal. He's the son who stayed and who looks at his father when the prodigal returns and says, This, for this man, I've always obeyed you. I've done everything that you've said, and you've never as once given me a party for my friends. They have a wrong view of God. That when God gives grace, they say, I'm doing everything perfectly and more. That's legalism. Legalism began at the fall when man became corrupted by sin. Now, we've learned what legalism is. It is anything that seeks to add to the finished work of Christ in order to be justified before God. We've discovered the roots of legalism. It is rooted in the, the hearts of corrupted sinful men that began when man fell. Now briefly, let us consider what legalism is not. What legalism is not. I think that uh, it may seem very obvious at uh, this point. If legalism is seeking to add or contribute any works to the finished work of Christ for justification then everything that does not seek to add or contribute to the finished work of Christ is not legalism. The Apostle Paul was correct to accuse the Judaizers of legalism. It is poisonous. It cannot save. It's a false gospel. Therefore, we must be careful when we accuse someone of being legalistic. 
We must not accuse one of being legalistic who simply believes that the Bible does not teach uh, that there is any room for disobedience to his word. If someone is teaching something that doesn't appeal to our desires or appeal to our personal taste, we must not slander that person by condemning them as being legalists. Simply because we do not agree with what they think the Bible teaches. Because legalism is saying, I believe you must do something other than what Christ has done to be saved. Let us not be so quick to call them a legalist, especially if what they are saying from the Bible we cannot refute scripturally. We just say, I just don't like that. What is your counter argument? I don't have one. I just don't like it. But I think you're a legalist. But you have, no, you have no rebuttal for what I'm saying. You have no response for what I'm saying from the Bible. You just think, I don't like that, so I'm going to call you a legalist. It's not your get-out-of-jail-free card. Many often use the accusation of legalism when they hear something they don't like as they're, I don't have to obey that. I just call that legalistic. So that they don't have to deal with the commands of God. Now, that's, that's a shame. If a person is zealously trying to be a person of the book, we must be careful not to label them as a legalist. Or even what is worse, I've been called this before, call them a Pharisee. Simply because they desire to obey what God has commanded. Louis knows this person. I don't know why he's friends with him. But a person called me to my face, you're a Pharisee. And here's what I said. I said that salvation is by Christ alone faith alone, grace alone. There is nothing that you can do to be saved. I don't believe in speaking in tongues. I don't believe in a prosperity gospel. And he said to me to my face, you're a Pharisee. I said, he was this way. I said, what's a Pharisee? You tell me. It's you. Friend, you need to go back and read your Bible. We are easily unscriptural. Aren't we? Aren't there many areas in our lives that are just unscriptural that we can do so much better in that when we look at God's word and it is a mirror to our lives, we say, gosh, I'm failing here. I'm failing there. Lord, give me grace here. Give me grace there. So when someone comes to us and shows us the mirror, we can't automatically say legalist. We should be seeking to be more scriptural, especially if they're giving us scriptural arguments for what we're not doing. Let, let us be quick to say, you're right. I could be doing better in those areas, but what stops us from saying, you're right, our pride. Our pride automatically stops us to say, who do you think you are? I'm fine. God knows my heart. He does know your heart. And because he knows your heart, he is showing to you the mirror and says, look how ugly it is. Let's clean it up. And the only way to clean it up is, not let me try harder, try harder. It is, God, give me grace. Give me more faith so that I might obey you in a more honorable way. Why? Because I bear your name. Pastor Isaiah said a, 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 told a story that I, I was really inspired to hear the other day about my father. When Isaiah had acted up in church when he was very young, because he never acts up anymore. Uh, and my father's rebuke to him was, you're a rug now. You bear a certain name. You can't act like that because it reflects now me. 
and this family. Brothers and sisters, when we act in ways that are not in accordance with God's word, we bring shame upon the name of Christ. We should want to say, give me more obedience. Don't dismiss someone's piety, that is, desire for holiness, as legalism. Again, especially if we don't have a counter-argument. We should not use the term legalism, I love what Ferguson says, as a way of making flexible what the Bible makes inflexible. We love options when it comes to God's commands, don't we? Well, if I, if I can, if all of the circumstances are right, what we are doing is we are making, remember those pencils that we used to do back in the day where the pencil would be floppy? We, we want God's word to be that way instead of when we hold it still, here's what it is. There is no flexibility to it. A pencil will break, but God's word will not. And just as we said last week concerning our hatred for sin, we must have a universal hatred for sin. All that is against God, we must hate. On the other side, we must have a love for all that God has commanded. And not seek to make God's commands flexible and adjust them to our liking. There's an example of this in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 8. The Israelites were at war with the Philistines. Israel was so overwhelmed with the number of Philistines that had gathered for war that they began to run and hide in the rocks and the clefts and in caves. It appeared to Israel that they would be defeated. Now, this was to be the people of God. They were those who had God on their side. Saul, the king of the, the army at that time, the king of Israel, was commanded by the prophet Samuel wait for his arrival. Saul waited. And as he began to wait, he saw that it appeared that the prophet was delaying his arrival, that he was coming much later than he expected. And as the prophet delayed his coming, the people also began to run and scatter. Saul took it upon himself to offer a burnt sacrifice to the Lord believing that he could win God's favor and therefore win the war if he uh, performed this priestly duty. There was just one problem. Saul was not a priest. And he was not authorized by God to offer a burnt offering. He broke God's law in order to attempt to win God's favor. Do you see that? Legalism. In order to be accepted by God, he tried to do something more than what God has commanded. But didn't he have a reason? No. There is never a reason to break God's law. Saul wanted to make flexible and inflexible command of God. He broke God's law. He disobeyed a command from the prophet. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel 13, 10, if you're there, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, who shows up? Behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to greet him. And what was Samuel's response? What have you done? What have you done? And he tries to make his explanation of why it was a good idea to obey, to disobey the law of God. And here's what Saul, Samuel uh, responds to him in verse 13. You have acted foolishly. In, in layman's terms, what a fool you are. You have not kept the what? The commandment of the Lord, our God, which he's commanded you. And here's what he says. For now the Lord would have established her kingdom over Israel forever. You would have been their king. 
But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought what? A man after his own heart. Why? Because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded. Now let me ask you, brothers and sisters. Was Samuel the prophet? Was he a legalist? Is he legalistic? Oh, Samuel, don't be so legalistic. You see people running and hiding. You see uh, the prophet did not show up. Don't be so legalistic. Is he being too hard on Saul? No. Saul revealed by his disobedience that he did not love the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul, with all of his strength. This is why Samuel says to him, God has found another who does love him with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Oh, read the Psalms when David says, with all my heart, I love you. With all my heart, I love you. It was not the work that would save him, but rather it was the work that would reveal that he trusted in God and was truly saved. Someone might say, that sounds like legalism. No, consistency with God's word is not legalism. Refusing to make God's commands optional is not legalism. Making God's commands is not spiritual. Or making God's commands optional is not spiritual. It's unspiritual. Now, if we say those who are saved attend worship and fellowship with Christ at his table because that's what God has commanded, that's not legalism. If we say if you don't come to church and if you don't come to the table, then you're not saved. Or let me try that away. You must come to church and you must come to the table in order to be saved. That's legalism. Saying we attend church. We attend the Lord's table because we are saved. That's biblical Christianity. And if you say, I don't have to, and you're placing that on me incorrectly, then you are rejecting a, a clear command from Scripture. And I'm not the legalist. You're the antinomian. That is one who has no law. The believer who calls the other believer to come, let us worship the Lord together. He is not a legalist. He's a believer. Legalism is not obedience to God and his law. Legalism is not learning to obey all that Christ has commanded for us. Legalism is not pursuing holiness. If someone, and let me say this to you, because there has been a dispute in this church for a long time, if I decide I'm not going to a market or to a grocery store or to a restaurant after this church or between church services, don't call me a legalist for my own personal decisions. For me, I want the day to be devoted to God. Am I perfect in that? No, I am not. Am I striving to be? Yes, I am. Will I place that upon your shoulders for what you do in between here? I won't. I will say, though, be here for worship in the evening when the, when the saints gather. Whatever you do outside of that, that is between you and God in your own pursuit of holiness. For me, this is what it is. Don't call me a legalist. And also read our confession. Because that's what it says. 
Legalism is not striving to please God and glorify Him in all that we do. Legalism is not being zealous in our good works and bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. Legalism is not an error of Christianity. It's, an, it's a different religion altogether. Legalism draws attention to us while the gospel draws attention to Christ. Legalism seeks to gain glory for itself, but the gospel gains glory for God. Legalism is rooted in self-worship, but the gospel is rooted in worshiping God. Legalism does not inspire you to work harder. It causes you to throw your hands up and say, I give up. We must never use legalism as a mask for our lack of desire to obey God's word. How do we love God's law without becoming at the same time a legalist? Well, we must remember again where it comes from. It comes from the heart. Remember what it is. It's anything that tries to add to the finished work of Christ. And also what it's not. So how do we love God's word without becoming a legalist? Let's finish this in closing, number four. Loving the law without being a legalist. You know that the old covenant believers, they really did love God's law. They really did delight in it. God provided security and direction for his his people through his law. God required perfect obedience through the law. And this perfection, though faithfully attempted, was never faithfully obeyed because Christ does that for us. But the law is good. We should, and they wanted to pursue and obey the law. Paul realized this. Paul thought of himself as blameless according to the law. He saw himself as a perfect uh, example or specimen of one who obeys God's law. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. Until God by his spirit revealed to him a spot, a blemish on his record. He realized that he was a lawbreaker because he committed a, a violation of God's law in a way that no one but himself could see. Paul realized that he was a coveter. That is, one who desires in the inward parts other things that others have. When Paul realized that he was a coveter, he realized that he was a lawbreaker. And when he realized he was a lawbreaker, he knew that there was nothing that he could do to make up for that law. There was nothing that he could ever do to make up for that law. Why? Because he couldn't fix his heart. And he realized that if he were to stand before God and be judged, he would be condemned because there's one thing he can't fix. It was his heart. And what was the thing that brought him to that understanding? It was the law. The law was his instructor. The law, as the book of Galatians says, was his schoolmaster or his teacher. He confessed the law was spiritual, but that he is flesh. The law revealed to him that sin pointed him away from his own self and to one who could keep the law perfectly in his space. What God required from men, Paul could never give. And so he, the law caused him to look outward, to look outside of himself. And the one he sees... The one he is drawn to by the Spirit is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the law does. It causes you to, to look at yourself and say, never good enough. And to look to Christ and say, the only one who is good. 
Galatians 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. The law, by the Spirit, changes our hearts and brings us to Christ. We don't then turn around and murder the one who has shown us our need for Christ, do we? The law is our teacher. It has walked us to Christ. And when we get to Christ, we don't say thanks. Boom. I can remember when I was 15 years old and I was taking driving courses. My first instructor was my, my dad. My second one secretly was my sister. She drove me through Lamont. I don't know if she remembers that, but it was a fun time. I was required to drive with my instructor for a certain amount of required hours. This is what they did back in the days. He pointed out all of my driving errors. They're still errors. But it was ultimately to prepare me for my test to get the license, to, to lead me to freedom, to drive on my own. When I received my license, thankfully, I did not run back to my driving instructor and say, hey, stand there. I'm going to run over you real quick. No. I am appreciative of the, the help that he gave me, the freedom that he led me to. In the same way, we do not turn to the law with hate and contempt in order to destroy it. No. The law has brought us to Christ. And when we are brought to Christ, we then turn to the law and say, now by the grace of God, I can obey you, and I am no longer under the condemnation that used to be mine when I disobeyed you. Because of Christ. Christ did not let it want one letter of the law would be removed. The law could not do what Christ was able to do, save us. And it was not created for that purpose. It was created to point us to Christ. It is God's holiness. It is God's perfect standard. And it has been perfected and accomplished by Christ. For what the law could not do, Romans 8, 3 and 4, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. If we love Christ, we love his law. And let me say to you that the loving God's law has a double meaning. Love God's law. Why? Because you have to. It's his law. Love God's law because it's so good. Love God's law because you have to. It's his law. And love God's law, and this is only for those who are regenerate, who, who can do it this way, because it's so good. The unbeliever doesn't say it's good. The unbeliever knows they must obey it, but they hate God for it. The believer knows he must obey it, and they love God for it. I had a conversation with a man about worship on the Lord's Day. And I had to confess to him that there were times when I'd been tempted to, to in my heart, travel. To, to be other places on the Lord's day rather than being in God's house. But I know what God has commanded. His response to me, yeah, but, but is it right? I said, what do you mean, is it right? Is it right that you go even though you don't really want to be there sometimes? My dear friend, it is what God has commanded. And I will do it because he's commanded it and because I love him. I love him more than my corruption. Remember, I'm marred in my, in my heart. I am marred in my mind. I don't often do the right thing that I know I should do. Because I am weak in my flesh. But when I am here, 
I never regret a moment of it. When I am here, I never regret that I have obeyed, that God has been glorified. When we come, we most reflect what will be done in the eternal state. Why would I exchange this for any other place in the entire world? Oh, gosh, and when I have been gone in, in, in another church, I am thankful that I am with that church, but I am not with my church. And I miss you dearly. We don't wait for a move of the Spirit before we obey God. We obey. We know that we mustn't hear in the strong assurances of God's rich grace a denial of an equally strong demand to obey God's law. As strong as grace is, so also is the strength of God's law. And they come together. They work together. They are bound together. We have grace to obey. And when we fail to obey, we have grace to forgive us of our disobedience. Amen. We know that by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And yet we are not outside of the law of God. The law has been stripped of its condemning power for believers. But the law is now our friend, not our enemy. God's law is a gift to us. Read the Psalms, how they say, oh, how I love your law. Oh, it is a light unto my feet. (laughs) Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Was he legalistic? No. Trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And grace is the cure for legalism. Turn to Christ. We must confess that we are all recovering legalists, aren't we? We're all recovering legalists. We all need to recognize how quickly our patience with others who fail can often lead us to having wrong attitudes towards those who are still learning, who are still growing. We must always give people the benefit of the doubt. Even preachers when they preach. Rather than mercilessly dismissing them as legalists and dismissing those who are trying to be godly people as legalists. In closing, we can fall prey. You remember the tax collector who stood and praised God and says, I thank you, God, that I am not like this. Oh, the Pharisee who prays to God and says, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I do this and I do this and I do this. And what was the prayer of the publican, the tax collector? He simply bowed his head before God and beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But do you know that the one who is beating his chest can also be legalistic? while pointing to the Pharisee and saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like this Pharisee. That I don't talk like him, walk like him, act like him. Look at me, God. I walk in grace. No. That person needs grace just as much as you do. So though we may not be legalistic, don't be proud of how much you know, how right you walk with God. How much you have arrived or not arrived. Let us be careful not to be prideful as well. I hope that that was clear to you today.
And I hope that we understand what legalism is, what it is not, where it has come from, and how we are called to love God and his law. Let's pray.